right now. Praise God. We had a time in here last night in prayer. And um, <laughs> we're talking about spiritual warfare. And some of the weapons that God has are a little unusual. And one of the weapons He has is laughter. So we had a good time in here last night. <laughs> we just laughed some discouragement away. <laughs> and it wasn't made up. It wasn't what I had in mind doing. It just it was just became clear it was it was what the Spirit of God was doing and the scripture says in James chapter one, when you fall into various trials anybody fallen into a trial or had a trial fall on them? Fall into various trials or temptations or pressures is what the word really means. Count it all joy. That means it's not an emotion, the decision you make. Count it all joy, my brethren. The word joy there literally means in the Greek to throw a party, to be hilarious. It doesn't mean just smile. It means you do just the opposite of what it feels like doing. Because in the presence, this is the scripture that went off of me last night, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. It was the word fullness that went. I just started laughing at the word fullness. Fullness of joy. The devil works so hard to discourage you, and all you've got to do is get in his presence, and all his hard work just evaporated. Because as we've told you before, he has no power over you. He has no power over you. Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to continue in our study of the armor of God. And you realize that if God's provided armor for that means we're going to, we must be in some kind of battle. And if we've talked about it, the first thing about being able to win the battle is to recognize you're in a battle. The second thing it realizes is who you're fighting against. So this tells us, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits or the tricks of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And I just realized I didn't print out my notes. <laughs> That's okay. It's going to be a good night anyway. I never used to use notes anyway. So, uh, Against the wiles of the devil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So verses 10, 11, and 12 tell us what the situation is. First of all, it tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Secondly, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we see, first of all, that we're fighting against the devil. We see what his weapons are. His weapons are tricks and deceits. He doesn't have atom bombs or nuclear bombs. He doesn't have any kind of nuclear weapon. He just has deceits and tricks. And really all a deception is is to take what you have and get you to use it against yourself. And so the, 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 the weapon against deceit is truth and light. And so that's why he says, first of all, recognize we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So the first trigger to see he has is to get you to fight the wrong enemy. That person sitting next to you is not your enemy, especially if it's there, your spouse. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Your, 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 your neighbor's not your enemy. Your mother-in-law is not your enemy. Your brothers and sisters are not your enemy. That nasty person that sits next to you at work is not your enemy. That person that just despitefully used you is not your enemy. Say, they sure seem like it. No, the Bible says you got to decide to do things God's way. God's telling us the truth so we'll win. 
the, the, the enemy that you have are demonic spirits. They'll use people. But they want you to think that person's your enemy because while you're fighting them, your real enemy's picking your pocket. And so he wants to create division and strife. One of the major weapons of Satan is to create division and strife because what he does is he's taking the body of Christ and dividing it up into little pieces. And when the body's divided, although the power of God is there, the, 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 the body will not act on the power that it has. Instead, it, uses the, it turns against itself. I've discovered there's some diseases out there, they're called autoimmune diseases, where essentially what it is is a condition where your body turns against itself. There's some diseases where literally your, your intestines start dis, um, digesting itself. And that's what the enemy's trying to work in the body of Christ, that we'll eat each other alive. And while we're doing that, we're paralyzed and he can steal what he wants to steal. And so we have to wise up and realize who the real enemy is. And so realize what his weapons are. And not be afraid of him, but be wise. It says in verse 13, Therefore therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Withstand does not just mean survive, it means to overcome. God's just dealing with me more and more and more that the purpose of this church is not to survive. The purpose of this church is to overcome and accomplish what God has for us to do. And to do it, we have to recognize we're going to have... When Jesus says in, in, in uh, Revelation over and over again, to he who overcomes, that again implies there's something we're going to have to overcome. There are obstacles in our way. It shouldn't shock us because Jesus told his disciples before he left, he says, he says, um, he says in this world, you will have tribulation. Not that you might, but you will have tribulation. Jesus also promised, the Bible says, that if you live rightly and you pursue God, you will be persecuted. Isn't that exciting? You will be persecuted. But he does say, fear not, for I have overcome the world. Several places, and in, in Hebrews it says that, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. He's seated because his work's been done. He's defeated the power of Satan. Jesus says at the, in the end of the book of Matthew, Behold, all power has been given unto me. All power and all authority has been given unto me. Well, it wasn't given as a gift. It was given because he defeated the enemy. John, 1 John says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Not that he might survive. Jesus did not come to this earth with the goal of just getting through and going through his 33 and a half years and then dying. He came for a purpose, and his purpose was to destroy the works of Satan. And his part of that role was to go to that cross and to break the power of Satan, which is through sin, by taking that sin upon himself and paying the price for your sin and for my sin so that he might give to us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, his righteousness which is going to lead us to our subject tonight. But he's seated now that he did his part until the mopping up operation is done. Yes. 
That's our part. Say, how come if he's defeated him, I'm having so much trouble in this world? Because he's defeated his power, but the work of cleaning up isn't done yet. This world is still in the grip of the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the God of this world. This world is still in his grip. And we are here to deliver out of that grip those that would be saved. To rescue and to deliver out. That means we've got to take souls away from him. That means we have to overcome his strongholds, the enemy's strongholds in this world. But we don't do it by just getting mad at him. We don't do it by getting afraid and running and hiding. We have to use the weapons that we were given. And they are spiritual weapons. And the first part we're we're going to look at is in Ephesians 6, where he gives us his armor. And the first piece of that armor, we've talked about, that armor is literally putting him on. Several places Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, he talks about putting Christ on. That's really what this is. Putting him on. When you put him on and the devil looks at him, he doesn't want to mess with you because he's messed with him before. So the first arm, part of the armor we see is the girder waist, or in some translation called it the belt of truth. And we saw why that was so important, because God is truth. And therefore, God only deals with things in truth. You've got God dealing in truth and the devil dealing in deception. So Satan's weapons are deceit. God's first weapon is truth. And the scary thing to us about truth is we have to confront things. And the biggest thing we have to confront is us. It's like Snoopy's revelation. We've met the enemy. It's me. <laughs> and so, so but, but, but if you're going to have God fighting on your behalf for you, you have to let go of your control of defending yourself that's what, that's what lying is. That's what playing games is. That's what deceit is. It's your efforts to protect yourself. And you have to let go of all of that and just walk in the truth of what you did. And the truth of where you are. Because we've already looked at it. God knows anyway. And by and large, the people that know you already know also. You're the last one to face it. So if we face it, now God can defend us. Now God can protect us. And I'll save you a lot of trouble. Through 33 years of doing this, He does a better job. I've seen Him rescue me and deliver me out of messes that I've gotten myself into. And the key over and over again, because He would ask me, just tell the truth. Just be honest and tell the truth. And then we began to look at the second part of the armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness. And the first aspect that we looked at that is righteousness. The first thing righteousness means is just simply living right before God. And it's just resonating in me more and more. We talked about that in the context of relationship. It's not that God sets a series of rules and He's sitting up there with a big switch that if you break one of those rules, He just can't wait for you to cross the line so He can smack you. Some of you may have grown up in schools where that's what they did. But that that, that God is not that. God is not a taskmaster. He is a father. He is a shepherd. He loves you. But 
Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, says, Because he loves you, he will correct you. He will correct you because what you're doing wrong is hurting you and will have consequences in your life. So he will correct you. Not only that, he has a game plan for you. He has a vision for you, which is literally to conform you to the image of Christ. So anything in you that doesn't conform to Christ, he will eventually confront so that you will let it go. So righteousness, living right before God, is simply living out that relationship. And I shared with you how when Anita and I got decided to get married, we didn't sit down and, and draw up a bunch of rules of what I can do and what I can't do and what she can do and what she can't do and negotiate those so that through 44 years, I'm just always testing a little more. Will you give me a little, kind of like teenagers do or kids do? You set rules and what do they want to do? They want to test them. They want to see how far can I go. They want to find out how far can I stretch this rule because they're not looking at the relationship that you have with them. They're seeing you as restricting their freedom. And, and there are people that have gone through a marriage ceremony and are living together and even have children who aren't really married. Oh, yeah, they're legally married, but they're not living in a marriage covenant because they're still trying to see what they can get for themselves. So they're in it to see what they can get out of it. That's not what marriage is about. A marriage covenant is literally, I gave myself to her 44 years ago, whether she gave anything back or not. And with that, she got everything I had. My faults and my good points, she got my bank account, she got my debts, my, my assets, and I got all her, her assets and all of her debts. And they were all just mingled together because we are now one. The essence of a covenant, of a marriage covenant, of a blood covenant, is two individuals have now become one. That's what Genesis says. And, that, and from this purpose, every other marriage is the two become one. They literally join together. So everything that one has is now everything that the other has. So the essence of marriage is not I'm trying to see how much freedom I can exercise... The essence is, how much can I bring into this? I've never yet, in all my years of ministry, sat down with a marriage couple having trouble in marriage, and the big issue was is that I wanted to be able to give more into this marriage, but they won't let me. It's always, I'm not getting appreciated. You know, he's not giving enough, she's not giving enough. I can't get what I need, she can't. It's not my needs aren't getting met. Instead of, I can't meet her needs enough. Nowhere have I ever found in the Bible where it says, I have a right to be loved by her. Nowhere in the Bible that I know of does it say that you have a right to be loved by other people. Jesus doesn't command you to be loved. He commands us to love others. Now, if we do that, then we will be loved. So that means I don't have a right to be loved. See, we're concerned about our rights. I don't see Jesus talking about our rights. He talks about our commandments, which are obligations. So my point is this. We didn't set up a bunch of rules so I know how much I can do. And I'm always testing them to find out, well, do I really have to, you know, can I go out with the boys tonight? Can, do I have to really come home tonight? Can I do what I want to do? But that's what we do with God. We think we're under a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, and it's this, this, it's there, he's robbing us of our fun. I can't have fun. 
And yet the Bible says in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Sin is not fun. <laughs> and there are a number of you here tonight who could give testimonies of that because you found out the hard way. So we saw that. And then we began to look at the other side of this. See, see Satan's goal is to separate to separate you from God. He couldn't stop you from being saved, and he can't pull you out. He can't pull you out of the body of Christ. But what he can do if you don't if you cooperate with him is he can separate you from your relationship from him. I'm not saying going to hell, but from enjoying and walking in your relationship with him, and out of that relationship really comes everything that you need for life, not just to enjoy it, but to succeed in life. So he's trying to separate you. So one way is to separate you by sin, by disobeying the things that are right in God's eyes, because that'll separate you. God will love you, but it'll separate you. That's what it did to Adam and Eve. The first thing they do when they sin is they ran and they hid from God. Why? Because He's truth. But the second way He tries to separate is with condemnation by attacking your heart. Because remember, the issue is the heart. The breastplate is designed to protect the vital organ of your heart. And we saw in Proverbs it says, to, uh, to above all things, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues, the outflow. Everything of the life of God flows into and out of your heart. And Satan wants to deposit in your heart his weapons, which are envy, jealousy, strife. And if he can't deposit those things, then what he wants to do is deposit condemnation. Because when he gets condemnation in your heart, then you turn on yourself. And so when we finished last time, we were looking. Remember, this is, we're in a war, and we're talking about a piece of armor, and the purpose of this armor is to protect your heart. First of all, to protect it by knowing that you're living right in front of him. I didn't say perfect. I said right in front of him. And we'll talk about more of that down the road. But the second thing this armor does is it kind of protects you from the inside by making sure you're doing what's right. It protects you from the outside, from the enemy's attacks against your heart to condemn you because if you're condemned, if you feel condemned, we saw in 1 John chapter 3, it robs you of your confidence before God. Most people struggle in prayer because of a lack of confidence. Most Christians struggle in prayer, I mean just doing it, because of a lack of confidence that God's going to hear them. I mean, think about it for a second. God can do anything. He's all-powerful and He's all-knowing. He has every answer to every question of every problem you have, and He can do it. He can solve any problem. Then why don't we go to Him and ask Him? Well, first of all, it's because we don't think He's going to hear us. Part of that is why would He listen to me? 
I've shared with you before, I used to struggle so much in prayer. I was getting up for a while at 5 in the morning, and we lived well north of here, up in central Massachusetts. And I'd get up. I mean, I would get up in the middle of the winter. I'd put on insulated boots, four layers, three scarves, big hats down over my head to go walk on the street to pray at 5 o'clock in the morning just so I'd be awake. And just I was going to have early morning prayer with God. And I walked, it was, I had a two-mile walk, one mile out and one mile back. And by the time I got back, I felt so discouraged. I didn't want to get up and do it again tomorrow. And it dawned on me one day, well, I'm spending, I don't know, 45 minutes with God, and I'm coming back more discouraged than when I started. Something's wrong. And I opened up a little book of Brother Hagin's. I can't remember what it was. And the first chapter he talked about, he used to do the same thing. Now, he didn't, I don't know if he wore coats and go out and walk in the cold, but he said, I used to spend the first 10 minutes of my prayer time telling God how sorry I was for everything I'd done yesterday. And by the time I was finished that, I felt like I was two inches high, and there's no way God was going to listen to me. So I stopped telling God everything I was doing wrong, because it dawned on me, He already knows anyway. See, that's just, that if you've done something wrong, deal with it. We'll talk about around, down the road about deal with it. Just, it's simple. It's really simple. But if you haven't done something wrong, why look for things? Why just go on this? You know, the, one of the biggest obstacles to my spiritual growth, and Anita and I were talking about this, that we were reading, she was reading a book today about it, is self-examination. Now, there's times and people that do need to examine themselves. But I was not one of them. Because I thought about my... I, I was so bad, I thought about my thoughts about my thoughts. Some of you will figure that out on the way home. I monitored my thoughts all the time to check whether they were right or wrong. I monitored my motives. And the result is I was spiritually paralyzed. Until I began to get into God's Word and find out He wasn't requiring me to do that. Because you see, that was a trap of the enemy. Because who was I spending all my time thinking about? Me. And that's all He wants. He just wants you to think... If He can't get you thinking about Him, then the next best thing is to get you thinking about you. Because when you're thinking about Him or you're thinking about you, who are you not thinking about? The Lord. He's your answer. He's your deliverance. He's your wisdom. He's your forgiveness. He's your sanctification. He's your righteousness. He's everything. So why do we spend so much time thinking about ourselves instead of thinking about Him? Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, you know, since we have such great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, which is the forefathers that have gone on before that are listed in chapter 11, let us therefore run with patience the race that is set before us and, and, and lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily beset us. And how do we do that? Looking unto Jesus. Not looking unto the weights and the sins. You don't put them off by looking at them. You put them off by looking at the one who paid for them. Now, we were in Hebrews last week. Let's get back into Hebrews. We'll go back and read chapter 4. The book of Hebrews is a, essentially a letter to Hebrews that were backsliding. They had been scattered out of Jerusalem by, by the persecution. 
And they were, he, this letter is written to them because there, was, there were people that were spreading false doctrine among them and they were known as Judaizers. And essentially what they were trying to teach them is that, okay, you can practice Christianity, but you've also got to keep the law. You've got to, you've got to be circumcised. You've got, the Christianity, in essence, was just a, 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 a sect of Judaism. It wasn't something new. And it wasn't a new covenant. It was an enhancement on the old Mosaic covenant. And, and it, was, it was crucial. It was crucial so much. Was, is it crucial that Romans, Galatians, and most of Hebrews are written to counter it? The whole message of Paul is written to counter this teaching. And this teaching is still something we deal with today. You deal with it. I deal with it. It's trying to earn something before God. Trying to earn our standing before God. Trying to be, it's, it's fine to try to be pleasing to Him, but not so that He'll accept you. He's already accepted you. The Bible says you are accepted in the Beloved. You're accepted because you're in Christ. You're not accepted because you're good. You're not accepted because you, did it, you were a good doobie today. Now, we need to be good doobies. But not so that God will accept us, but that's what that pleases Him. And so, Hebrews is so crucial to this because Hebrews helps us to know how to overcome that. And so, he's, it's a contrast starting with the angels, comparing Christ to the angels. Then he's comparing him to the, to the high priest and the method of worship that was, that was under the Mosaic law. And that's what this is. So, he's comparing Christ, the real high priest, to Aaron, the order of Aaron. So, we're going to go over to chapter 4 and just um, let's start in verse 14. Seeing then that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's of Him as Savior. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted, excuse me, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, therefore what? Every time you see the word therefore, stop and ask what it's there for. What's it referring to? Because what it's about to say is based on something he just said. And the answer here of what he's about to say is based on the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And he's better than Aaron. He's better than Aaron's sons. He's better than any of the high priests, all of them put together. That's what Hebrews 3 is talking about. And he's going to talk about later on in 7. He's going to talk later on about it in 9, about why... The priesthood that Jesus established is better. But therefore, he's just saying it's better. But because he is our high priest, therefore let us come... What? What? Boldly. That's what Satan's after. He's after your confidence and boldness before God. And our human nature is to be bold based on how, what we think of how the job we've done. I used to notice that the mornings that I had, it was easy to come into His presence was because I really felt I'd been done well the day before. But if I had struggled the day before or even that day, 
I found it was hard to sense my, feel, my, feel myself coming into his presence. Because I was aware that I hadn't maybe done everything I thought I should have done, whether he told me or not. But the Bible says, come boldly. This is a written invitation from God to you for tomorrow morning. Now, they don't do this very much anymore, but I have in some functions gotten invitations. And it will say, you know, so-and-so cordially invites you to attend a banquet in the honor of so-and-so. And down in the corner, it will say, black tie. What it's telling you is you're invited to this event, but they're suggesting to you how to come, what you're supposed to wear when you come. Because if you come wearing that, you're going to feel more comfortable because they're telling you everybody else is wearing black tie, a, a formal dress. I suggest to you that Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 is a written invitation to you for tomorrow morning to come into the presence of the King of Kings and of Lord of Lords. The place of the invitation is literally the throne room of, all, of a holy God. And the suggested way that you come is boldly. The suggested attire that you put on is boldness. And see, we we, we, when we do that, we sometimes feel like, like, like David when he was going to fight Goliath and he went to Saul and they bring him to Saul and say, this boy says he'll fight Goliath. And Saul says, oh, well, you need to wear my armor. So, I mean, Saul was seven feet tall. David was still a boy. So Saul puts his armor on him and it's hanging all over him. <laughs> the, 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 the helmet's cocked down over his head because it doesn't fit on his head. The breastplate is dragging down by his knees. It's too big and he can't fight in that armor. He's not comfortable in that armor because the armor was somebody else's armor. Oh. 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 2 Corinthians 5.17 said, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, put off the old man. Put off that old garment that you used to wear because it's not you. It doesn't fit you anymore and it's not befitting of you because you're not the person on the inside that used to wear that, out, that outer man. So put him off because it's no longer your clothing. doesn't fit you anymore. Instead, he says, put on Christ because he fits you now. He's the suggested required attire for coming in to the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And therefore, it's because 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say in verse 21, 
Verse 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, not an improved creature, not a washed up version, cleaned up version of who you use. See, our concept of salvation is so weak. And the problem is, if it's weak, it's wrong. If you don't have the right concept of your salvation, it's wrong. If it's watered down, oh, this is so important. If it's watered down, it's wrong. If you don't understand the basis on which you come to God, then you can't come to Him. I don't mean He's keeping you out. You won't come. Because to come to Him, you have to come boldly. You have to wear a bold tie. (laughs) I'm looking at John over there. I know he'd wear a bold tie. (laughs) You've got to come boldly if you're going to come. But you won't come boldly if you're wearing your old clothes. But they're not who you are. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That word new literally means a new species of being, one that never existed before. All things have passed away. Behold, all things. What's all mean? All. All things have been made new. Verse 21 says, He who knew no sin, who's that? Jesus, became sin so that we might become We might become, not know about, not experience every once in a while. We might become the righteousness, listen carefully, of God. When you came to Christ, He didn't clean you up so that you were more righteous than before you came to Him. Because I don't care how much he cleans you up, you'd still be you. Your nature would still be the same. Isn't that what we tried to do with ourselves? Didn't we try to clean ourselves up enough so that we could come to God? That doesn't cut it. Because as you've heard me say over and over again, the problems are nature. You were just acting like your nature. On the cross, Christ took sin and it was judged. The Bible said God poured his anger out for that sin. Instead of pouring it out on you, he poured it out on Jesus who committed no sin. Why did he do that? so that he might then turn and take his righteousness and give his righteousness to you. That means that when you come into the presence of God, you're coming in wearing his righteousness. Oh, it feels a little uncomfortable at first. It feels like it doesn't quite fit you. Why? Because you didn't deserve it. And you didn't. And neither did I. 
and neither did anybody else. That's why it feels uncomfortable from the inside. But he gave it to you. He gave it to you. He gave it to you to wear. He gave it to you so you could put on and you could answer his invitation and you could come boldly to the throne of grace. Yeah, but pastor, you don't understand. How can I come boldly when I messed up? Oh, let's read the rest of the verse. Come boldly to what? The throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy. When do you need mercy? When you messed up. And find grace to help in time of need. The key there, the reason this works, is we have a faithful high priest who's gone before us. And that just covers where we were last week. <laughs> Let's go over to ch- chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect, that means more complete tabernacle, that means dwelling place, that's the throne room of God, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place. That's literally the presence of God. Once for all of us, having obtained eternal redemption. What tense is that? Past tense. Actually, in the Greek, it's perfect tense, which implies in Greek something done once that has an effect that keeps on lasting. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heather sprinkling clean, unclean sanctify for the purifying of the flesh. Remember last week we talked about the scales of justice? And we said under the old covenant, what they, all they had on the scale was, was, the, was the, the flesh and the blood and the fat of these animals. So it could only counterbalance so much on the other side. I saw that as I was going through and meditating on this this week. Notify, he talks of this contrast he has is between the cleansing of the conscious and the cleansing of the flesh. Under the old covenant, all that was cleansed was their flesh. I don't mean so they didn't smell, you know, like that. I mean so that they were ceremonially clean. But it couldn't change them on the inside. It couldn't get rid of that guilty conscience. It couldn't get rid of that condemnation that they were under. All of us were under that before. It couldn't get rid of that. Why? Because although the cleanliness of our flesh could be outweighed by the flesh of goats and bulls and of their blood, when it came to the heart and the nature of man, that's a much weightier item. And it took something on the scales much more valuable, much more weighty. It talks about the glory of God. That word literally means a weightiness, a value. This verse is saying, but the value, because the value of the life, because the blood represents life. The value of the life of bulls and goats, it was, it was of a value that could only make them temporarily okay before God. But it couldn't deal and wash away forever the real root problem, which was their rotten nature. And ours too. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, because of his eternal value, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. For those who are called, who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him who will appear a second time. So he's coming a second time, but this time he's coming apart from sin. Why? Because he paid for that. So this time he's coming for salvation. The completeness of our salvation. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very, end of, not the very image of the things, could, can never, with those same sacrifices, which they offered continually, I shared with you last week, that they offered them 24 hours a day when they were in camp. Over, you could always smell in camp the burning flesh, which was a constant reminder that their sins had to be paid for from yesterday. They got them paid for yesterday, and they turned around and did it again, so they got to be paid for constantly a reminder that those sins were never completely dealt with. So the smell in the camp was a reminder of their sin. So God's purpose was to rub their nose in the fact, literally, in the fact that they still were in sin. Why did God do that? So that they would understand their need for a Savior when He came. We don't have time to go into that right now. Verse 2, for if they had made them perfect, then they would, not, they would not have ceased to have been offered. For the worshipers, listen to this carefully, if they were once purified, would no longer have had a consciousness of sin. Now listen carefully. He's saying, if those worshipers in the old covenant had been cleansed in their nature, then they would no longer have been walking around with a consciousness of sin. But they couldn't do that because what was offered for them in the Old Testament was not valuable enough to cleanse their inside. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Verse 10, but by that will, that's the will, because what's talking in between is talking about the will of God, which was for Christ to come and offer His body. Verse 10 says, but by that will, we have been, not will be, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest stands ministering daily, this is under the Old Covenant, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. See, in the, in the Old Testament, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. Why? Because the work was never done. 
The idea of a chair sitting down represents the works finished. Not that they're tired. The works finished. It says in Hebrews 3 that, that, in, that in, in Genesis, when God rested from the creation, He didn't rest because He was tired. He rested because the work was done. And it goes, says, we are therefore to enter into His rest. Not because we're tired, but because the work's done. From that time on, verse 13, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So that's what he's waiting for. So till we make his enemies his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, here's another therefore, having what? Boldness. So we have it having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, that means sincere, and look at this, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil Consciousness. That means a consciousness of evil. And our bodies washed with the pure blood, pure water. That's what Satan's after. He's after your heart to condemn your heart so that you will not have, conf- will not have confidence and boldness. Because here's what happens here's his devi- one of his devices. He'll get you thinking about how weak you are and what a failure you are. And he'll plant people around you that you just think are just, and they're walking on water. I know they walk on water every day. I know before they came to church, they at least raised one person from the dead. And they just look so holy. They've got their hands in the air. They never have an evil thought. They're just worshiping God and love Him so much. And you have no idea. They're thinking the same thing about you that you're thinking about them. It says in Second Corinthians ten thirteen that there's no temptation that's used among men that's not common among men. The devil doesn't have many tricks, and there are none of them that are new. So the same thing he's working on me, he's trying to work. He's trying to work on me. He's trying to work on you. He wants to isolate you, and then once he isolates you. He wants to work on you and get you to think you're just a bunch of trash. I mean, I know you're a Christian, but you're, you know, you, the thoughts you had yesterday. Those thoughts you had, Gary. Oh, how could you be a Christian and think those thoughts? Because what he wants to do is get you to think about what you're doing wrong and how you're failing because as you do that, you become discouraged. When you discourage, you let your guard down and your resolve to stand begins to weaken. There's an old technique, and I, I, I didn't go to military school, but from my reading and studying, in, 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 especially in the Revolutionary War, but uh, I've heard it. Uh, what they, what one of the techniques they would do to, to destroy a fort is they would just start shooting cannon fire into it. They bombard them. In fact, the, the, the Battle of Yorktown was weeks 
just the, 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 the American forces and the French forces pouring relentlessly, night and day, barrages of cannon fire, with white-hot cannonballs, day and night so that, that they couldn't sleep inside the fort, to beat them down and wear them down until their defenses began to crumble. Their morale began to crumble. They, they couldn't sleep. And the enemy works the same way, lobbing missiles at you. We're going to learn how to stop those later on. Lobbing missiles at you, and they're always directed at you. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of person? You're not doing what you ought to do. You don't pray as much as you ought to pray. And it's subtle little thoughts. It's not big road signs you're driving by. It's little thoughts that get in your mind. You know, well, you're not, you're not praying as much as you should. You know, this, this, see, I have to do it as a pastor. You get someone like Lafayette Scales here, by the time he leaves, I feel this big because of all the things he's doing. And I've had to learn I can't do that. I've got to look at what's God doing here, how long have I been here, how long has he been there. You know, I can't look at what other people are doing. I've got to look at God. And my job is to keep my eyes on the Lord, not on Lafayette Scales. And not compare. One of the biggest weapons he uses is comparison. Well, you're not like so-and-so. We're not supposed to be like so-and-so. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Well, I'm not like him either. I know that. But looking unto Jesus, that's how you get that way. If you just know this one verse, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no, no condemnation. If you're struggling with discouragement and having struggle in your worship with God, go to these verses and just meditate. I know them by heart because I've gone over them and over them and over them. When I start praying in the morning, I'll, res- I'll talk these verses out to the Lord. Say, I'm coming to you by faith in my high priest. My high priest has come before you, and I come by faith in him. And his blood has gone before me into your presence. So no matter how I feel, it doesn't. I come by faith and full assurance. Because your word says, I am to come in full assurance or faith. Your word says, I am to come boldly. So I'm going to obey your word and come boldly, whether I feel bold or not. And you know what happens? I start feeling bold. Because I take my eyes off myself, and I put my eyes on God and on what He's done for me. And that's the key. When you'll learn the secret, Satan's ultimate goal is to get you to take your eyes off of Jesus. So it's simple. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, you've got to grow in it. You're not going to do it perfectly. But just remind, every time you start struggling, get your eyes on Jesus. Every time, I have this thing I'm going through. I says, you know, Lord, I just, when something struggles, I just draw near to Him. I don't care about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to draw near. Something goes wrong, first thing I do is just draw near to Him. Lord, I'm drawing near to You. I'm resting in You. you got this covered. Now, what do I do? Instead of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Or try to handle it on my own. Draw near to Him. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and He's everything in between. 